0: You guys can go ahead and turn to the book of Philippians. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning as we look at just a really awesome passage. Really excited to share this with you. So this morning we're looking at Philippians chapter 2. And if you want a kind of a picture of what this passage looks like, how it works, it reminds me very much of these. Um, If you know me at all, you know that I was the kind of kid who geeked over these kind of books. I geeked out at these books. I love these books. Actually, my son has them and I... I still read them today. Like, I love to pull them off the shelf. I don't know if you guys were into these as a kid, but the way things work and there's a bunch of other books that followed those. You open them up and for each each page, each, each uh, thing that you open to, it has a diagram of how something common in your world works. It shows you the inner working. So I remember learning how like a lock and a key worked or, or how the electric motor in the can opener in the kitchen worked. And I know I sound like such a nerd, but I loved it because before that they were just kind of like these little black boxes. I didn't know how they worked. But now all of a sudden I, I live for that moment when like the light would go off in my brain and suddenly it would dawn on me. So that's how it works. I love that feeling because once I know how something works and I know how to use it and I appreciate it. Now that's not just true in my life when it comes to like mechanical things. It's true in every area of my life with my marriage, with parenting, with, with my body, how I take care of my body, with my spiritual walk. I want to know how things work so that I can use them and and appreciate them. And so that's why I really love this morning's passage. It's kind of a a way things work for the spiritual life. It's it's going to open your eyes to see how, how God designed you and how the spiritual life works for you. So really fun passage. We're going to start in verse 12. So turn to verse 12. We'll take kind of a verse at a time as we go through this way things work kind of passage. So if you look at verse 12, Paul says, so then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what is this passage going to be about? Well, it's that short and rather unusual phrase when Paul says, work out your salvation. Now, what does that mean? Well, we're in church. It's a Sunday morning. And when most people are in church on a Sunday morning and they hear the word salvation, they think about going to heaven. That's what salvation is. It's when you're saved from your sins so that you get to go to heaven. Now, that would be a problem because Paul says you got to work. Whatever this salvation is, you've got to work it out. We know very clearly from other passages that Paul wrote that we don't work for our salvation into heaven. We don't work at all for that. And so what's going on in this passage? Well, we have to remember that the meaning of a word, whether it's in the Bible or just in everyday speech, is determined by context. It's determined by the things you say before that word and after that word. So, for example, if I say the word trunk to you, What do I mean? Am I talking about an elephant's nose or the base of a tree or the back of a car or a box you put clothes in? You don't know without the context. You don't know without everything else that comes around that word. So it is with every word in your Bible each word can have a variety of meanings and you have to determine which meaning is in view by the stuff that comes around it. So you start out by asking yourself, well, what could a word in the Bible mean? What could salvation mean when you see it in the Bible? Well, there are lots of answers to that question. I'll give you just some of the highlights. So this is not an exhaustive list, but when you see the word salvation or save in your Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, here are some of the things it could mean. It can mean recovering from illness, like getting better after an illness, the Bible calls that salvation. It can mean being delivered from enemies, somebody who's trying to pursue you. It can mean being rescued from physical danger, like you're drowning. We would say you are saved. It can mean forgiveness of your sins. We call that justification. It can mean spiritual growth, growing to be more like Jesus. We call that sanctification. It can mean glorification. When God finally removes the the vestiges of sins and gives you a resurrected body, that is also salvation. Sometimes the word salvation refers to all the last three there forgiveness plus spiritual growth plus glorification altogether sometimes that's what salvation means when you look at all these different possible meanings of the word it's clear that salvation or save in the bible the basic root meaning is simply deliver that's all it means it doesn't mean go to heaven it means you're delivering someone so what are you delivering them from well you got to use context to figure that out so in our passage What's in view? What what are we being delivered from? Well, not sickness or enemies or physical danger because the Philippians weren't facing any of those. That's not in the context at all. And it can't be forgiveness because they had already been forgiven at the very beginning of the book. Paul says that they are saints. Saints are those whose sins have been forgiven. So it can't be that one. And it can't be glorification because you don't get any of that in this life. That's all for the next life. You don't work that out at all. So it can't be that one. It obviously can't be the last one because it wasn't the it wasn't forgiveness or glorification. That leaves only sanctification. And that's what's in view in this passage. Work out your salvation, Paul is telling us, work out your sanctification. Work out your growth in righteousness so that you are winning more and more victories over sin and becoming more and more like Jesus. That is the point of this passage, the big idea. That's what this passage is about, is growing in righteousness. Okay, so Paul is going to tell us how to grow in righteousness. And this is where I say that this passage is one of those how it works kind of passages. Paul's not just going to tell you grow in righteousness. He's going to tell you how that happens. How is it that you grow in righteousness? I think all of us know that we probably ought to grow in righteousness. We probably ought to grow to be more spiritually mature. You kind of know that. You should grow in obedience and righteousness. But how? How? How do you actually do that in your life? Paul's going to show you. Okay, so he's going to show us very plainly how the spiritual life works, how you grow up in righteousness to be more like Jesus. And he's going to begin with our part in that process. What is our part? That's verse 12. Let's read it again. Look at verse 12 again. This is our part in this process. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling and, and in this verse he's telling us that our part is is simply obedience. As they have always obeyed, they are to continue obeying. Now now notice as we look at this obedience, there's a number of things to, to note here. What should you obey? Well Paul doesn't tell you. He leaves it broad. The point is that you are to obey everything that Jesus has commanded, either directly in the Gospels or through his apostles like Paul. Everything you have written to you, especially in the New Testament, you are to obey that. You're to obey Jesus in, in every area of life. And Paul says we're to obey him at all times. It's not, not just when Paul is present, to keep tabs on them, but at all times. So both in, in public and in private, at, At church, at home, at work, in in every way we are to obey Jesus. Okay, so all the time, everything that Jesus obeyed, and here's a real kicker, here's a real challenging one. We're to obey in an attitude of fear and trembling, there at the end of the verse. Now that one trips a lot of people up. What's going on there? It seems kind of odd to tell us, well, our attitude towards God should be fear and trembling. That seems contrary to so much that you read about in Scripture. It seems contrary to what you were just singing. Like, aren't we supposed to feel love for God and warmth towards God and friendship towards God? Why the fear and trembling, Paul? Well, here's here's the deal. Fear and trembling in English... That sounds like terror, right? That sounds like how you would feel if you go see that new Halloween movie in the theaters, which I'm not going to see. It's way too much for me. Terror is what we think about. Occasionally in the Bible, fear and trembling can refer to terror, but usually it doesn't. Usually in the Bible, the concept of fear and trembling is referring to what we would call awe or reverence. So I'll give you a couple examples in Mark chapter 16, the end of the book of Mark, um, the women who had been following Jesus, they go to Jesus' tomb and the, the big rock had been rolled away and they walk inside and there's an angel there shining and he talks about how Jesus has risen from the dead and the text tells us that the ladies leave trembling and astonishment gripped them. Trembling, that same word. Well, they're not in terror. They're in awe. They're amazed at the power and beauty of God. Another example for you, in the book of Luke, Jesus heals a paralytic guy who couldn't walk and we're told that the crowds were struck with astonishment and filled with fear. That same word, filled with fear. Well, again, they're they're not in terror. What are they? They're in awe. They're they're blown away by the greatness of what Jesus has done. That's what Paul has in mind. So what we're being told is that we're to obey out of an attitude of reverence and humility towards God. And here is the point for you. There is a way to obey God that pleases God, and there's a way to obey that doesn't please God. What do we call the way of obeying God that doesn't please God? That is legalism. What is legalism? It's a word we use all the time. Legalism is is that you obey God. You truly obey God out of pride. Legalism is doing the right thing for the wrong reason. So you obey God out of pride. You are trying to make yourself look good to God and to other people. This is what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees, let's be clear, the Pharisees obeyed incredibly. They were really good at it. But all of their obedience was worthless. It all displeased God. Why? Because it was all corrupted by pride. Their, their obedience was motivated by a desire to get God to owe them something and to make themselves look better than everyone else who couldn't obey as well as they did. Well, that, that isn't obedience that pleases God. That's not acceptable. And so when Paul says obey out of fear and trembling, what he's saying is don't obey like the Pharisees who are obeying out of pride. Instead, obey out of humility. Let your obedience flow out of an attitude of awe towards God, out of reverence for God. You obey not because you think you're great, but because you know God is great. And you want to live out of his greatness through obedience. Okay, so Paul is challenging us to obey in every way, all the time, out of an attitude of humility. Now, we've we got to talk practically, how do we do that? Because I don't know about you, but like, pride is really hard to get rid of. It's endemic to the human heart. It's like, you don't have to try to be prideful. It's just kind of always there. So, what can you do to, to help yourself to obey God or to follow Jesus out of an attitude of humility rather than an attitude of pride? You can't just tell yourself, stop being prideful. That doesn't work. So what do you do? Well, this is where a few spiritual disciplines come into effect. God has given us spiritual disciplines. Those are practices that we we put into practice in our lives to help us to walk in humility. And particularly when you're trying to fight pride, there are three disciplines or practices that God gives you to fight a spirit of pride in your heart. The first is prayer. Because prayer, when done properly, is in and of itself a a humble act. When you go before God and you say, God, I can't do this without you. I need your help. That is humbling. So you're fighting pride by praying and asking for God's help. The second spiritual discipline that fights pride in your life is worship. Worship, when, when you gather together, when, when you sing the greatness of God, when you declare how awesome God is compared to you, that is a humbling act that crushes pride in your heart. Third spiritual discipline is a discipline of gratitude. We've talked a lot about that. That's a big one. Gratitude is just pausing to remember how good God has been to you and, and taking time to give thanks, to tell him thank you for all the good he's done in your life, if you will practice those three disciplines on a regular basis prayer, asking God for help, worship, declaring how great He is, gratitude, saying thank you for all He's done those three disciplines will push down the pride and raise up the humility in your heart so that your obedience is the right kind of obedience. You'll be doing the right thing for the right reason. You'll be obeying out of awe and reverence for God, and that pleases God. That's the goal. So God wants us to obey him in every way out of humility, out of reverence for him. That's our part. But if this is where the passage ended, it would be hopeless. This This would actually be really bad news if it ended in verse 12. Because all we've done so far is talk about what we have to do. And I don't know about you, but when it's just all about me, I don't do so well. Paul felt that way about himself. There's an amazing passage in Romans chapter 7. Here's what Paul says about his life as a believer. He's talking about his experience as a follower of Jesus. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Man, I know that feeling. I've experienced that so many times. I have such good intentions. I want to do the right thing. I want to obey. I want to please God. But in the heat of the moment, I just don't follow through on my good intentions. I blow it. I give in to sin. I just, I don't have enough willpower. I don't have enough strength to follow Jesus as I should on my own. That's why it's such good news that this passage doesn't end with Verse 12. It goes on, and in verse 13, we learn that we are not alone in this process of growing in righteousness. Paul moves on and begins to talk about God's part in this thing called sanctification. So read verse 13 with me. Paul says, "'For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure.'" So God is in you, God is at work, and there's two things that God is doing, represented by the two verbs in this passage. I'm going to take them in opposite order, so to will and to work. Let's begin with the, the verb to work. So the first thing that God does is he is at work in you, and what that means is that God is empowering your obedience, as you say, God, I, I want to humbly obey you. God works in you to empower that obedience. There's an interesting word play here, both in, in English and in Greek. It says literally, God works in you, so you work what pleases him. God God wants you to obey, and so God is committed. He has promised to work inside of you to enable the obedience, to make it possible to obey him. God is going to give you his supernatural strength so that you can follow through on your good intention to obey him. And that's a promise that's true for all believers. No, No matter how far we've fallen into sinful behaviors, sinful habits, even sinful addictions, that promise is true. God will work in you so that you work what pleases him. You see that in a lot of passages. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is a famous one. Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is, not, that is not common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. God has promised he will not abandon you in your moment of temptation, he will be with you. He will give you the strength to obey. Now, that that is not a promise that if you're really struggling with sin, like a sinful habit or sinful addiction, that all you need is more willpower. That's not what this is saying. God has given you a lot of tools in your life to help you to win victory over sin. And you should use all those tools. That includes Accountability. It includes Bible studies where you're growing in the Word. It includes life changes that you're making. It includes family who's around you. It may include doctors and even rehab if this has really grown into a sinful addiction. I talked about all of that in a sermon I taught last semester on the subject of addiction. So if you're wondering how do I battle bad habits and addictions, go back and listen to that sermon. I'll walk you through all those details. The point at this moment is just to say utilizing all those tools, God. God has promised he's going to be with you and he's going to use those tools in your life to enable you to obey in the moment. And that is an incredibly good thing to say. No matter how far you have fallen into sin, if you know Jesus, there is always hope. You can obey because God lives in you and God is stronger than any temptation you face. But that's not the only thing God is doing in your life. As you choose to obey, God is not only empowering your obedience today, but the second verb, he's working on your will. And And when Paul says God is working so that you will, what he's talking about is desires. That's what the Greek word will means means. It, it means your desires. God is at work in you transforming your desires so that in the future you will actually want to obey at least a little bit more. And that is incredibly good news. There's incredible hope here. I think so many people think of Christianity as a whole lot of rules that you must follow that keep you from doing the fun things you want to do. That is not true. Christianity as a religion is about transforming you so that you want to do the things that are good for you. That's God's hope. God doesn't want you living a, a dull life of obligation. That's not what God's heart is for you. God wants to transform your heart so that you desire what he desires. And that can happen as you obey through the power of his spirit. He can work in you through a process we talked about in that sermon last semester on habits and addictions. God built your brain to form habits. And his spirit uses the biology of your brain to change your desires. And here's how it works. Some of you studied it. Some of you know this better than me. Your brain is pliable, and so as you choose to do something over and over again, day after day, that thing, whatever it is, it grows into a habit where the the neural connections in your brain are strengthened so that going down that path becomes stronger and stronger. Well, that process of forming habits can work for good or bad in your life, depending on what thing you're choosing to do. If you choose to do something sinful over and over, then you get a sinful habit. But if today you decide, I've had enough of that, I'm going to begin to grow in a righteous habit. I'm going to let the Spirit use the biology of my brain to grow me in righteousness. Then what the Spirit is going to do is begin to latch together neural, neurons and a neural pathway that lead to righteous behavior. I, I like to explain to people, I used this analogy last semester, it's just like when you cut a path through a forest. So some of you are going to go deer hunting here soon. I think it's like almost a season. And you're going to go out and you're going to try to go down some trails. And and think about it. the first time you try to go through thick underbrush, is that easy or hard? It's actually really hard. The first time, if it's really grown together, you're like having to push everything out of the way, chop stuff. You're getting cuts. You're getting, you're getting sweaty because it's a lot of work. Okay, the first time you cut that new path, it's a lot of work. But then you come back tomorrow and you do it again. And It's a little easier, right? Because some of those branches broke off. Some of those weeds got trampled down. Then you come back the next day and the next day and the next day. What happens after a whole season? Well, now you have a whole new path and it's trampled down and it's dirt and you can run down it. That's what happens when you say, yes, God. I want to obey, and it's going to be hard today. Today's the first day. It's going to be really hard, but in the strength of your spirit, I'm going to believe that you can empower this righteous choice, so I'm going to go down this hard path, and you do it today, and then you wake up tomorrow, and you say, God, I I know you're still calling me down this new righteous path. I'm going to go down that path in the strength of your spirit, and you do it the next day, and you do it the next day, and a month later, you look up and realize this isn't as hard. As it used to be. And a year later, you look up and realize, wow, this is kind of becoming my natural thing. And five years later, you look up and realize, I've been going down this path for five years now. This is who I am. Because the Spirit has grown this new habit in my life. God has promised, as you say yes to obedience day after day, He is going to grow through the power of His Spirit and the biology of your brain, new righteous pathways that leads you to be more and more like Jesus. And the wonderful thing and you know this, if you've ever gone and cut trails out in the woods if you stop going down that old sinful path, over time, what 's going to happen to it? It's going to grow over. And that 's actually true. The, the neural pathways in your brain they begin to dis- disconnect. they, they unlock. and that sinful habit, that sinful path, becomes less compelling over time. That 's how spiritual transformation works. That's how God designed the spiritual life to work. He gives you the strength to obey today. And as you obey day after day, he changes your habits and your desires so that you want to obey more in the future. That's incredibly good news. You can grow in faithfulness to the Lord because he is at work in you. God is constantly working in your life to grow you in righteousness. Now, that's probably not going to happen overnight. That's why I was using words like a year, five years, 15 years. It takes time. Occasionally, God will do it like that, but that's rare. Usually, this is going to be over the long course of your life as you grow in righteousness. God can do stunning things in you. No matter how much you've given into sin in the past, there is always hope, not only for victory today, but transformation tomorrow. Because God's at work in you. So after telling us how sanctification works, Paul now moves on immediately to an example. So he's going to give them one particular area to work on. It was a particular sin that the Philippians struggled with a lot. And that I'll be honest, I struggle with two. This one is, man, I, I understand this one. This one is very difficult to fight. So we're going to talk about sanctification applied in verse 14. So, Paul moves right on to an example. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's really short. That's really hard. Really hard. All things, not just like churchy things, but all things without grumbling or disputing. So grumbling, grumbling means complaining in a quiet voice is the idea here. So um, the idea of grumbling is that you get frustrated with someone. Someone disappoints you, someone says something mean to you, whatever it might be. You you are hurt by someone. You're frustrated with them. Rather than going to them to look for a solution, to confront them with their sin, whatever it is, instead you quietly go to other people and and you spread the discontent, you spread the complaint, you spread the anger with other people. That's, That's how grumbling works. Grumbling happened a lot in the book of Exodus the people of Israel, they, they grumbled. And the point was when life was hard, rather than go to God and Moses to look for a solution and grow in faith, instead they, they quietly complained to one another. And, and that grumbling, it spread like an infection in the camp. And that's, that's what grumbling does when you grumble from one person in the nest it's it's spreading an infection of discontent of anger throughout the whole community and that destroys love it destroys trust it's incredibly destructive and so God challenges us to not do that anymore just stop stop grumbling in in any way at any time now what does this look like well I, I want you to think back over the last couple months of your life I want you to think about a time when someone frustrated you Okay, and let's, let's think about like, like adults here. Let's not think about little kids because it's hard to, hard to talk to them about this. But let's think about it. some some adult has frustrated you in your life, disappointed you. Well, you had a choice. You you could go to that adult and you could talk to him about what's frustrating and you could look for a solution. Or did you go and, and complain to other people and, and spread discontent? Grumbling doesn't look for solutions. It just seeks company and misery. So you spread that around. Now we do have to be clear. When when we're hurt by someone, it, it is okay to talk to a few other people. I, I do that. When I'm, when I'm hurt by someone, when something's really disappointed me, I'll go talk to a few safe people for the point of being encouraged and, and getting help processing through something. So I might go talk to my wife, Julie. I might talk to my parents, who are always a safe place for me to go. And the goal is just to process and figure out, is this legitimate? Do I even need to talk to this person about this? Help me understand what's happened here. That's okay. What's not okay is if you go out and and you just talk to the, to the public at large, one person after another, not for the purpose of being encouraged or guided, but for the purpose of spreading out your misery and your discontentment. If you've done that, that's grumbling. That's what it looks like. And Paul says, don't, don't do that anymore. The second word, arguing. When you think about arguing it, or disputing, in, in my translation, um, it's important to clarify that not all arguments are bad. Sometimes we do need to have arguments in some form or fashion. There's an appropriate way to argue about things that we disagree about. And so God wants you to have strong opinions that are well-informed and to stand up for those strong opinions. And, And particularly God wants you to argue for those who are mistreated or hurt. What Paul's talking about here is something we talked about at the beginning of the book of Philippians God doesn't want us to let secondary issues destroy our unity around the gospel ultimately that's what arguing is it's when we say I'm not going to focus anymore on Jesus on the gospel I'm going to take this secondary issue whatever it is the example we gave was political opinions I'm going to let this become ultimate in my life and I'm going to divide from other people even other Christians over this one issue that's not okay that's what arguing means. You've elevated a secondary issue and allowed it to become something that divides you from other followers of Jesus. That's it's not something God wants for us. And so Paul raises these two issues. We need to not grumble. We need to not argue as an example to us of what sanctification looks like. I think it's a great example because grumbling and arguing are really hard to stop doing. They really are, especially for me, the grumbling part the complaining idea and and if you think about complaining i don't know if this has been your experience but so often it's not something that like i consciously choose hey i'm going to do this now it's not like I have some moment of, of just insightfulness and I say, today, I would like the, the nature of my day to be a day of grumbling. I would like to complain today. I'm going to go find five people with whom to share my complaint. It's not like that. It just happens, right? You're just in conversation with somebody and blah, it all comes out. And, and then you look back on it. I should not have been complaining. I should not have been grumbling. Why did that happen? So here we have a... A perfect example of a sin that kind of seems to own some of us. It's really hard to fight. So what hope is there? Well, back to the verses we just studied. The hope is God is in us. And God has promised, hey, if you will commit today to try to humbly obey me in this area, I know you're still struggling. I'm not looking for perfection here. But if you'll commit, God, I've blown it in the past. Please help me to humbly obey you in this area of complaining today. God has said, I'll be in you. And I'll work in you. And I'm going to give you strength. Keep looking to me throughout the day. Every time you feel tempted, look to me. I'll give you the strength you need. And more than that, if you'll walk with me today in this area of your speech, I'll begin to reshape those desires and those habits in you so that a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, you will not be known as a complaining kind of person. You'll be known as a gracious kind of person. That's the hope that there is. God can work in us, even in something as difficult and and sometimes unconscious as complaining. Okay, so Paul's given us an example of how this sanctification thing can work. The rest of our passage, I mean, you may notice we're not even halfway through yet. The rest of the passage is motivation. Paul's going to tell us why it's worth it, because this is challenging. Growing in righteousness, growing in obedience is hard work. So Paul tells us, here is why it's worth it. So he's going to give us motivation for sanctification. Um, That kind of rhymes, didn't mean to do that. Um, He's going to give us motivation in two ways. He's going to tell us two results that will come in your life, two things that will happen if you will say yes to walking with God in obedience. And so the first result is verse 15. Look with me. Here's the first motivation for growing in righteousness. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So the first reason Paul gives us for growing in sanctification is it results in witness. If we will say yes to God, if we will pursue obedience through the power of God's Spirit at work in us, particularly in this area of grumbling and and arguing, then God will cause us to become witnesses to the world about Jesus. We will show the world that Jesus is true. So let's talk about a few key phrases here. Paul says we need to be blameless and innocent and above reproach. Blameless, innocent, above reproach. Now, first of all, that doesn't mean never sinning. That's not possible. All of us are going to blow it. We're all going to sin in the course of our lives. When Paul talks about blameless and innocent and above reproach, what he means is that the overall character of your life is so upright, so gracious, so kind, so loving that when the world looks at you, they say, what? We, We can't even quite understand how you are what you are. You seem blameless to us. You seem upright to us. If if we were to charge you with evil, everyone would laugh because we know that's not you. You just you stun us with your godly character. I, I had an example of that this this week. My wife and I watched um, the Fred Rogers movie uh, about "Will You Be My Neighbor?" and um, Fred Rogers he's a he's a Christian. And you think about a guy who pretty much everyone in the world would look at and say. Really? Like, are you really that guy who's on the TV, that gracious, that kind? And everybody said, yeah, that's really him in real life. He really is that kind. He is that gracious and people are in awe of it. I mean, the movie was mostly people who aren't Christians talking about Fred Rogers, this believer who lived this out. and they're They're in awe of him. That's what God wants for you. God wants you to live a life through radical, supernaturally empowered obedience that when the world looks at you, they say, I don't understand. How are you so kind? How are you so gracious? If you will live that way, the result, as Paul says, you'll appear as lights. Better translation would actually be you'll shine like stars in the heavens is the idea. And remember, this was written before the age of, of electric lights. There were no man-made lights. So what Paul is picturing, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I remember one time being in, uh, hiking in a national forest in the Rocky Mountains, and we finally, we hiked for miles. We got out of the last vestiges of man-made cone of light. You know, basically there's no effect of man-made life on the night sky as you see it. And so we're way out in the wilderness, and, and we look up on a crystal clear night. And I think that the thing that I most remember, I mean, there were just countless stars. I mean, way more than anything you could see here. The thing that really struck me, though, is that I couldn't stop looking. It was just so mesmerizing that, like, if you were outside your tent, you would would just find yourself, how long have I been sitting here staring? I don't know. I've lost track of time. I can't stop looking at this. It just captures my attention. That's what God wants for you. He wants the world to look at us as a community, and they can't stop looking. They can't stop saying, how? How are you so loving? How are you so gracious? That's what it means to shine like stars in the heavens. People are transfixed. At that, So I've seen that proven true in my own life in this area, particularly of, of complaining. When I was in college, I often did poorly in this area. So just like everyone else around me, uh, a lot of non-Christian people who were around me, I would complain about my professors and my homework and university policies I didn't like. And, and because I would complain about them just like everyone else, the result was is that in the eyes of my non-believing fellow students, I just looked like everybody else. Nothing particularly remarkable here. I'm just like everyone else. But um, God continued to chip away at that, at that area of sin in my life and to grow me. And so after I graduated, I went and worked at a, at a small engineering company. I've told you guys about that. It, it had a lot of mismanagement. And so there were a lot of problems there. And the result was all of us engineers were tempted to grumble and my coworkers who weren't christians did that a lot and and with god's help i wasn't perfect but i really did try to resist that urge of grumbling about management and just stay positive and gracious and kind and and people noticed i actually had one coworker he had just he and me at lunch one day and he actually said what is wrong with you like why, why are you so kind Well, man, talk about an easy opportunity to share the gospel. It's just right there. I get to talk about Jesus. That's what happens when you say yes to this process of sanctification and choose to obey. God will open doors for you to be a light to the world. Because people will be amazed at what God will do in you. So that's the first result. Second result Paul gives us starts in verse 16. He says... Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. A lot of unusual language here. Paul is is describing his life as worship. That's ultimately what this is about. When you choose to obey God, it results in worship of God. Paul describes his life as an act of, of Old Testament style worship. So in the Old Testament, how did you worship? Well, through sacrifice. And, and he says that right now, as he is in prison, as he is thinking about his death, he wants the end of his life, the final part of his life, to be like a drink offering. That's the last part of an Old Testament sacrifice. So it was the icing on the cake. He wants even these latter days of his life to be a drink offering poured out to God. How? Through his obedience. He was willing to follow God even in prison, even in suffering, even eventually in death. He wants that radical obedience to be an act of of worship to God. And the point of all that is to say, if you want to know, hey God, how can I worship you? How can I declare how great you are? How do I need to live a worshipful life? So many of us think about singing think about coming here to church on Sunday morning and singing about God. That is worship, but that's not ultimate worship. The the ultimate expression of worship is actually obedience. That's how you really declare the greatness of God. Why is that? Well, because worship is defined by sacrifice. You show that you love something by what you're willing to give up for it, right? Well, how much did it cost you to sing those songs this morning? Not a lot, not in this country. Some other countries, there's a big cost, but not here. And so still, that was worship. It mattered, but it wasn't, it wasn't the height of sacrifice. But obedience, obedience does cost you. You have to sacrifice what you want to do to do what you should do, at least until God transforms all those desires in you. You often have to sacrifice your rights and desires to show love and care to other people. For some of us, we're going to have to sacrifice money and career and respect, even freedom to follow Jesus. Obedience requires a huge sacrifice. And therefore, by definition, it is a huge God-honoring act of worship. And so the second part of this motivation, why should you seek to obey God? Because that's what worship looks like. When you humbly obey God, you are declaring to God that he is worth it. You wouldn't do it if he wasn't. And so say yes to obedience through the power of God's spirit in you and the result will be you will be a stunning witness to the world that draws men and women to Jesus Christ and you will be living a worshipful life that declares to yourself, to the world, and to God that he is worthy. So as we summarize, as we draw this together, what we're learning this morning as we think about how sanctification works, I think at the end of the day, is that ultimately we really have no excuse not to seek to obey God in every area of life. There's no reason not to give every part of our lives to God and say, God, help me to obey you in in every place, in every way, because God's promised that he will Enable our obedience today, transform our desires tomorrow, and use us as witnesses in this world as we worship him through our obedience. So what I want to do here for a, a couple minutes is I want to lead you in a time of prayer. And during that prayer, I want to ask you to, to take this time to confess. So privately, just between you and God, I want you to confess those areas to God where you're really struggling with sin. You, you may have confessed them before, but just acknowledge that sin to God. Okay, if it's an area you've not confessed yet, you've been excusing, you've been living with, I want you to confess that to God, that that's not okay, that's, that's not excusable. So I want you to confess an area of sin to God in your life. And then second, I want you to ask God to begin to, to work in your life to give you strength, starting today, to obey him in this area of life. And that not only will he give you strength in this area of life, but that he will also gradually, day after day, transform your desires so that obedience in this area becomes more natural and sin becomes less frequent. So I want you to confess and I want you to ask for God's help. So I'm going to lead you in prayer and give you some time to do that. Heavenly Father, we praise you. And we thank you that when we, when we think about Jesus saving us, for so many of us, we think about him saving us from our sins so we get to go to heaven, which is totally true. And we thank you for that. But we praise you that, that he has saved us in more ways than that. That he has also saved us in the sense that he's at work in us through the power of the Spirit to deliver us today from sin and temptation. We praise you that through the resurrection of your Son, we today can walk in newness of life. And so, Lord God, we come before you, and in this moment, we acknowledge that whatever areas of life we've been walking in sin in, whatever sins we've given into, whatever temptations we've given into, there's really no excuse for that, because you've promised you can work in us, you can transform us. And so, we want to confess these areas of sin to you, Lord, and we want to turn them over to you and ask you to give us strength to walk in obedience and to transform us so that obedience becomes more natural. And so I'm just going to give us all some time now to confess areas of sin in our lives to God and ask him for his help to have victory. Heavenly Father, we are weak. We are sinful. we, We have failed so often in our lives. We thank you that you are patient with us, that you are kind and gracious. We pray, Lord God, that you would Through your spirit, put your finger on areas in our lives where we have sinned. We pray that you would convict us in those areas, open our eyes to see that. We pray that you would help us to be quick, to confess that sin, to turn from it, to repent. And then that you would help us through the power of your spirit, both to obey you today and that you would begin to transform us so that we want that sin less and less over time. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would transform us into such obedient, kind, loving, gracious people that the world can't help but wonder how in the world we do what we do. We pray, Lord, that you would make us shine like stars in the heavens so that people would come to know Jesus Christ and so that you would be glorified and worshiped. You are worthy of that. We lift up our lives and hand them to you, our Heavenly Father. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.